Welcome to Viewpoints, listeners. I'm your host, Henry Grosek. It's me a great pleasure to welcome co-host to Viewpoints, Russell Hanby, for this week's edition of What's Making News. How are you, Russ? I'm well, thanks, Henry. And how are you today? Oh, even better. Even better still. That's good. We're getting closer and closer to um, the end of term two and the winter break for a couple of weeks, which is one of the one of the uh, things that certainly we do um, we do uh, acknowledge in our profession of teaching uh, that those um, holiday breaks that we have at the end of term. Remember them when you were a teacher. Yes, we hung out for them towards the end of term. I remember <laughs> there was in, in in your day there would have been and early in my career it would have been three da- three term years, wouldn't it? Yes, three terms. That's right. Yes, in uh, I know September and May. I think May Correct. holidays September yeah. Yeah. and uh, yeah. And you had longer uh, holidays at Christmas. They yes, they took two weeks to... off Christmas and have made it a four term year. Yeah. That's right. It was close to seven weeks in some cases, I think, back then. Yeah, you, yeah. you knocked off somewhere around about the 20th of December, 19th of December, and you didn't come back until the 4th or 5th of Feb. No. Well, we all come back now um, sort of Before... th- three weeks into January, three and a half weeks into January now. So, yep, so I think the four-term year has certainly been well-received by by people compared to the three-term year. What yeah, you... because... Yes, I think so, because we have used to have close to 15 weeks in between uh, long terms, weren't they, really? They were 15, sometimes 16-week terms, and by the end of it, um, I know every profession does it hard, Russ, and everybody's work, it's hard to say this is easier, harder than another, but teaching's a challenging job, very rewarding, but it's certainly not, uh, it's not an easy job in the sense of, you know, children children test you out, and you've really got to work hard, don't you? Yeah, we do. In fact, that's one of our items coming up today, even, about how, how difficult it can be. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, certainly at the moment, the profession is struggling where it's, it's, it's no secret that um, we've got a shortage of teachers and school leaders. Uh, people have left the permanent side of the profession. Some are doing casual relief teaching, but it's very hard to get replacement teachers, either short-term or long-term, and leaders in schools too. Uh, and that's, as we've said this before, Russ, it, it is a worry because um, the education of our children is such an important important part of our societal uh, responsibilities, isn't it? Yes, it is. Any thoughts have you had of coming back and doing a bit of casual relief teaching? You'd still, uh, you'd still no, have, you'd still have. You uh, wouldn't be too rusty, would you, Russell? <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you do get rusty. I must admit, when you're out of the game a while, yes. No, no, game, no, yeah. no plans. No, no. You, you leave it to the ones that are still in, will you? That's it. Yeah. Do but, you but, do you recommend teaching as a former teacher? Here's a question that 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 I always like to ask people. Would you recommend it as a good profession for people to go in? What are the benefits of being a teacher? Apart from yeah. some of the, uh, you know, the, the pay, the holidays, uh, security maybe? No, I think it, it's, it's obviously more than a profession. It's, more, it's a sort of a real, it's almost a lifestyle choice that uh, people make to become teachers, isn't it? And uh, mm. many people love the classroom side of it. Then when they sort of have to get into administration, they don't find it so good. But uh, I think it's certainly it's a good and worthwhile profession, don't you? Certainly important. And, yeah, look, I find it worthwhile. I wouldn't have stayed in it so long if um, if I really didn't uh, like it. I think if you don't like kids, Russell, teaching's not, not your job because uh, they'll spot you in a flash and 
life becomes difficult if the people with whom you're working uh, and you are not connected. I think that applies to any career. But oh yes, no, children, you, you've you've got to be vested in kids to be to enjoy teaching and also to be a good teacher. That's true. Yes, my word. Now we'll get stuck into this week's, and and it is that time of year, isn't it? Uh, in the age, dark times, but winter solstice is more than the shortest stay in a year. Daylight hours dwindle to their shortest time on the twenty second of June in the southern hemisphere, as the Earth's tilt pushes the southern pole to its farthest point from the sun, sun and ushers in the winter solstice for those people south of the equator. That, of course, includes us, Russell. It does, yes. And uh, the shortest day of the year, that's right, it was this Thursday this week, and uh, it's the shortest amount of time between sunrise and sunset. Now, the sun takes its uh, lowest and quickest path across the sky. It's not necessarily the coldest temperatures, although this week it did deliver 2.7 degrees uh, in Melbourne, pretty chilly, and Sydney had a frost uh, in uh, frosty June morning, the first major one in 13 years on Wednesday. But it's uh, not necessarily the coldest on the solstice. Mm-hmm. Now, on this day, Melbourne has nine hours and 32 minutes of daylight. Other cities, uh, of course, depending on where they are, have less or more. Melbourne's daylight hours are more than five hours shorter than December's summer solstice, where we have the the longest day. So there's five hours difference. Now, in the northern climes, the solstice marks the start of winter. Uh, Now, solstice is from uh, the Greek, I guess, or uh, sol meaning, uh, and sister meaning to stand still. Now, the southernmost uh, point of the, uh, the the Earth points 23.5 degrees from the sun in, in Antarctica. Now, over centuries, the tilt has varied between 22.1 and 24.5. Now, in, the Arctic, that, in the Arctic Circle, uh, where it's really happening, there's no daylight at all on this day. And it's interesting that over the decades and centuries, many cultures have celebrated uh, the solstice as being a life and renewal and, and others get, on the other hand, get a depressive disorder, apparently from a lack mm. of too much, uh, no, not having enough sunlight over several days. So it's had lots of even superstitions over the time, hasn't it? Yeah, it has. It's uh, it's uh, it's the solstice, and much of our literature uh, uh, centres around that in some ways at times, doesn't it? Uh, the winter and summer solstice. It's got yes. that sort of um, uh, almost supernatural, spooky type of thing about it, hasn't it? Quite apart yeah. from, uh, and it also has uh, got some religious significance for some uh, for some faiths, doesn't it? Yes. Oh, I can remember years ago, uh, I think when we used to have homework for me, I, we looked that up about the uh, beliefs of the solstices, oh, about six or seven years ago, just what you're talking about. Hmm. Now, an interesting other side of the science part of it, Russell, which would interest you, is this is, and you mentioned the tilt varies and that uh, it, it it's like a spinning top, the Earth, and that uh, explains why we have uh, the winter and summer solstice, the long and shorter stay. But the degree of the Earth's tilt is actually slowly decreasing like a wobbly spinning top straightening out in its 41,000-year cycle. Now, throughout the centuries, the angle has varied from between 22.1 and 24.5 degrees, according to NASA. We're currently, Russell, about halfway between the extremes. And as the Earth reaches its minimum tilt in about... 
10,000 years, seasons will become milder and more ice will build up near Antarctica and the Arctic because the tilt isn't exposing the poles as extremely to the sun each summer. So amidst the climate change uh, situation in which we find ourselves, um, the, the, the degree of tilt of Earth and the, and, and the way it varies uh, from one extreme to the other over a 41,000-year cycle, that also has an impact, doesn't it, yes. on, on our seasons? Yeah, and as you said, this is about 10,000 years when uh, it reaches its minimum tilt. They reckon the effect of a tilt is progressively greater further away from the equator, which is what you'd expect, I suppose, because uh, it's all happening uh, on that where the axis is on that tilt, isn't it? Mm. And from that perspective, there's some of uh, climate change which is beyond our control. There is some of it that is, some isn't, and some is. Fascinating. Fascinating, isn't it? Did you know all that? No, not until I found out about it today. Yeah. I mean, we, you could say, oh, 10,000 years, you know, a bit like winning $10 million. So there's a big jackpot <laughs> on that, I think, too, isn't there? Absol- but, uh, <laughs> absolutely. Now, Russell, what's this give kids a clean bill of health? Yes, well, uh, good kids uh, clean bill of health. We've mentioned this a few times about uh, junk food for children. Yes. Most, most from the Herald Sun, most Australians want a blanket ban on targeting children online with the marketing of junk food and drink. And um, also the majority from a survey research they've done, they support, the majority supports government action to stop food and drink companies designing websites, games and mobile apps that promote unhealthy products. Uh, and more to this, the Cancer Council of Victoria found that more than 80% of adults were opposed to food and drink companies being able to collect children's personal inter- information for marketing purposes. Now, Jane Martin of the Food for Health Alliance uh, says that currently there's no meaningful penalties and, and she says self-regulation is not working. Now, Sophie Scamps, a Teal MP, introduced a bill into federal parliament to restrict junk food advertising aimed at children. Uh, we haven't heard the result of that. Mm. Now, Jane Martin wants a, the Privacy Act review. She says this is the best way to handle the Privacy Act review to include protection for children. Now, another fact is that uh, 13 to 17-year-olds exposed are exposed to 100 online promotions for unhealthy food and drinks every week. Someone has gone to the trouble of looking at that. And um, dental nurse Kate Reed has concerns for her children and all children about childhood obesity from sugar, etc., mm. type 2 diabetes and, and other illnesses. So well, we know it's been a problem for years, but nothing, we talk about it, but nothing much happens, does it? No, but um, the fact that this has been profiled and we do have people pushing for it, I think uh, persistence is something and publicity which, uh, which can, can gain traction. And, yeah, hopefully we do something in that regard because junk food is really one of the, the, the more dangerous uh, things that, uh, that we ingest, really, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yes, so it's a, kids are very vulnerable. Well, so are adults to to marketing campaigns, and uh, we're responsible for them. Uh, and and you know they're they're greatly influenced by what adults do. We have the power. We need to do something about it. We'll take a short break, Russ. You can hold the line, I guess. In the time, don't hop into any junk food while we have the break, will you? No, I won't. <laughs>
Welcome back to Viewpoints, listeners. I'm your host, Henrik Russick, and we're in the middle with Russell Hanby, co-host of What's Making News. Welcome back, Russ. And you didn't go and spoil yourself or damage yourself with any junk food, I presume? No, not a morsel past my lips, no. Not a morsel <laughs> past your lips, I like it. There's something about that sort of language. Now, the age, Russell, ancient artefacts found at undersea site. Uh, five sharpened stone tools recovered by divers off the north coast of Western Australia amount to the oldest underwater archaeological discovery in Australia. Researchers who led the expedition believe. Now, this is a fascinating one. This you might like to tell our listeners a bit about it. Yeah, well, near, it's near Karatha, and the divers, uh, they scoured the edge of a pit on the ocean floor. Now, this pit was once an above-ground freshwater spring. And Vince Adams and Muru Juga Aboriginal Corporation said that he knew straight away that discovered tools belonged to, as he says, our old people, and it's something we still use today, he said. That the tools are used for cutting and skinning small animals such as possums. Now, this hole is 15 metres below the surface, but thousands of years ago, it was a spring in a dry valley, and humans were drawn to its banks. And uh, the monthly tide gave these uh, diggers uh, a three-day uh, window to dive the divers and they've come up so far with five artifacts and and uh, the encrusted sea life that was covering it of course was dissolved with hydrochloric acid and professor benjamin of flinders university said that the stone tools could be nine thousand years old and it's uh, partly caused because of a there was a sea level surge from glacier from the glacial ice back then and uh, and so that's probably why the pit ended up at the bottom of the sea there. But it's interesting that they've come up with a how it got there and also what it is, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. 9,000 years old, Russell. I mean, that, that that's a long time ago. It also shows you when you read through the story um, how things on our planet um, geologically have have changed over, you know, the, the, the millions of years in which the Earth has been here. That's true, yes. On the other side, it's interesting that some of these tools are still basically used today, isn't it, by, by, the, by the people there? Yes, so, and, um, uh, the pictures of them are quite, quite amazing. And when you look at where it is, yes, it's up there near the Dolphin Island. Have you ever been over to Dolphin Island or the Borough Peninsula, Murrinjuga? No, no. You have, have you? No. <laughs> I just thought I'd ask you oh, before you, you asked me. The way it's, you asked, I thought, oh, yes. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's sort of, I think, a bit north of Broome, isn't it, on the coast there? Yes, I, I think I it gather. is. I've been to yeah. Broome. Have you been to Broome? No, I haven't. It's one of those places I wouldn't mind going to. The beaches are great, apparently, aren't oh, they? Oh, beautiful yeah. Cable Bay Beach there. That's a, it's, it's a lovely place. And, of course, the, the time-honoured photographs of the camels, you know, oh, on yes. sunset as you walk along the beach there is quite fascinating. I'll tell you what else I found uh, really fascinating there. Well, firstly, it's, it's opal country. I think black opal country. So there's a lot of opal uh, uh, shops up there. But the thing I found interesting, Russ, was their old picture theatre, the outdoor picture theatre, which dates way back. And you sit in deck chairs there. All oh, right, yes. Yes, and, uh, and you've got this, it's almost, it, it sort of resembles a, um, semi-resembles 
uh, one of those, you know, drive-in cinemas, but you're not in a car, you're sitting in in a deck chair. Uh, okay, and yeah. And it's a real life. And uh, there's this aeroplane that goes overhead that used to go overhead. That still happens sometimes. It's 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 like transporting yourself back, you know, 100 years yeah. almost. Yeah. <laughs> Of course, it'll be so balmy too, the weather over there, isn't oh, it? Oh, beautiful today? weather over there. Yeah. Yeah. You've got to be careful when you go there, though. You don't want to go there in the wet season, the monsoon season. It's it's much better to go this time of the year. Yeah, I've noticed there. the temperatures, uh, they, they had mid-30s most of the year, but I think it's down to about 30 now, so it's probably a good time to go now, isn't it? Oh, absolutely, Russell, it absolutely is. Now, the next one is in education, and it's a... Uh, it's a bit of a disturbing one. It, rather than the individual school involved here, um, it does, when I read it, raise uh, the issue of, that concerns a lot of us. You know, um, there's 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 uh, a lot of children are struggling, uh, and that's uh, having a ripple effect on school staff and I dare say their families too and colleagues. You might like to tell us about it. Well, aggressive pupils have forced a primary school in Melbourne's outer east into lockdown with the police uh, being called. We probably don't, as you say, need to name. It's not so important the name of the no. school because it's probably not. It's probably representing other case schools, yes, of course, around the place. That's anyway, mm. yeah. It's, it, this school, anyway, has had a number of short lockdowns, and police attended to support students involved. Now, the principal uh, wrote to parents and said the lockdowns were a result of students having outbursts um, and that can lead to an explosion of fear and big feelings and apparently she says that many of them some of them come to school with fear and anxieties which overwhelm them and and then it becomes unsafe for that child and the rest of the school community and the leadership team at this school then need to act uh, to keep everyone safe and as uh, she says the last resort is a lockdown mm-hmm. and the aim of that is to stop any student being harmed or any any member of the community of the school now the herald sun under the freedom of information have revealed uh, that there are on average i suppose 22 reports of weekly violent and aggressive behavior against students and staff and in recent times principals can issue school community safety orders to parents carers and others who engage in harmful threatening or abusive behavior I remember we've talked about this before too, and uh, probably every school and every principal's experienced uh, something like this at times. Yeah, look, look, the first thing is the vast majority of students and the vast majority of parents are really good people uh, and work closely with you and as horrified as anyone. But sadly, Russell, COVID to some extent may be a factor in it. Um, the health and well-being and the emotionality of, of some children um, has certainly been impacted on in a negative way. The same applies to parents. Uh, there are many pressures on a lot of people. And, of course, it spills over into schools uh, and, and classrooms. And, of course, um, it affects everybody. And uh, the allied health services are under pressure uh, big time. Now, to their credit, the Victorian government and the department uh, have provided and are providing uh, quite a surge in funding uh, to support us in the area of mental health and well-being of our students and our staff. Uh, and that money's coming into schools, and I must say it is most welcome to us, and it'll certainly assist us with us. But, but of course, um, it's a societal issue, and schools are microcosms of society. And, yes, uh, aggressive kids... Um, 
stressed parents, uh, yeah. te- teachers who are under pressure too. I mean, we're humans too, have created, a, in many cases, a cocktail that uh, leads to, you know, uh, situations that uh, I'd say do contribute to some people walking away from the profession as much as staying in it. And, of course, uh, that that of itself isn't a good thing either, is it, Russ? No, no, that's right. We don't want that sort of thing. I think it mainly affects the larger schools. I, I guess, the, you know, obviously the very small country primary schools are usually happy places and the parents and the teachers and everyone know each other. Uh, but once that, I'm thinking of that case where I think several schools combine in Shepparton and they've had a few problems there, haven't they? Over, oh, I over... think, look, Russell, I'd say over time there would be very few school communities uh, that uh, haven't had issues uh, of one sort or another that... Uh, um, includes unacceptable behaviour both in the school. I mean, another one which happens, and we've talked about this before, we won't today, there's an unfortunately too much, well, there's always too much, unacceptable online behaviour, mostly and often caught, uh, happening out of school between students. That sort of stuff, it's not physical. It might imply or physical behaviour to follow that's bad, but that's psychological and emotional and uh, we get confronted with having to deal with the, the wash-up of that. All schools, sooner or later, uh, and that, that's time-consuming and very distressful. So, yeah, look, it's, it's tough times in our schools, Russ, but uh, I guess we've just got to... You know, the ones that are staying in, uh, we've got to grit our teeth and work as closely as we can with the authorities and the uh, and the parents and families and these children to to help them out. But uh, yeah, look, I read that piece and I thought, mm, sad. I'm not yeah. surprised because it's uh, it's certainly out there. We've all experienced some of that um, over time. Yes, that's what I think. I think that just represents probably many schools that are happening, whether yeah. they're, in, you know, and so it's a pity in a way the school was named, uh, I think, because yes. the impression that oh, everyone else is managing, what's wrong with them, isn't it, you know? Mm, and I can see the point, and that's where people get, um, you know, a bit quite rightly, I think, upset about things because it, it, it can create a stigma for a school, which ultimately is one of, of many that are having some level of that. The odd spot, Russ. Yes, well, this is a nice, more light-hearted story. People in the eastern Indian state of Odisha aren't taking any chances. They keep a flock of carrier pigeons for use should disaster, <laughs> for should disaster wipe out modern communications methods. Now, the state's carrier pigeon flock consists of 100 birds. Now, they played a vital role after communication lines went down in 1999 when a powerful cyclone hit coastal areas as well as in 1982 during devastating floods. So when all the modern communications went down, the old uh, pigeon, carrier pigeon, came to the fore. <laughs> Look, <laughs> as much as we have technological advances, and we do almost every other day, Russell, <laughs> um, I guess it'll be back to smoke signals next as well, you know. <laughs> I think, so. I, think, I, think I've seen, I think I've read about a few cases in the war, perhaps First World War mainly, where these carrier pigeons were used a lot, yeah, weren't they? And look, look, they do the job. If not, if all else fails, you you carry a pigeon, <laughs> providing it, it it avoids the hawks and the eagles. Yeah, and doesn't get lost. It doesn't get lost. We'll get the job done. Uh, so it's a, it's an interesting one. Russ, that takes us out for this week. Um, I hope you um, enjoy the benefits of uh, the shortest uh, few days 
in terms of daylight uh, in the past week and in the future week at home, cozying up inside your house. That's right. Well, at, least, at least the days are getting longer after the today. That's so true. That's, good. that's <laughs> true. Psychological part of it for the first week or two. Yeah. But, but we know we're on the right course. Well, listen, you have a great weekend and we'll catch you in three weeks. We've got a two-week break. Okay, well, look forward to it, yes. Take care. That was Russell Hamby and What's Making News, listeners, and uh, we'll be back shortly. Welcome to Viewpoints, listeners. I'm your host, Henry Gross. It gives me great pleasure to welcome, as always, co-host to What's Making News, Russell Hanby. How are you after the break? And hello, Russell. Hello, Henry. Yes, so you, you went away, I believe, up north of the northern climbs, did you, a bit? Yes, we uh, took some time off to go up to Cairns. Beautiful place there. Went to the Tablelands and Cooktown. Interesting places, uh, Russell. Uh, uh, the Tablelands are a beautiful uh, place. We... We went to um, Chilligo, which has got an old disused mining site uh, that uh, was operating from 1910 to about 1960. Uh, what, what was amazing there, Russell, was the slag heap of um, the ore, the 1.5 million uh, tonnes of ore that they, uh, they extracted, uh, from the ground, of which only half a million was used and one million was remaining there and it was full of asbestos and chemicals and it was huge. But the caves, they got beautiful caves up there at Chiligo and, um, and some wonderful uh, Aboriginal art uh, uh, on, in the caves. It uh, hasn't been damaged and it's very accessible and, it, and they tell wonderful stories. And the other place was Youngborough. I've never seen so many... Uh, platypuses out in the stream that runs through a very beautiful town called Youngborough, uh, Youngaburra. And uh, if you ever want to see platypuses and you want, you're prepared to go so far north, um, they're, they're literally, they're not that, they're shy, but they don't just disappear in the distance like we often oh, see. You actually get to see them. Because there's meant to be a shortage of them coming nationwide, isn't there? I think mm, they're not. Uh, mm, so that must be where they've all ended up. They've all ended up there, yes. And it was it was good. And Cooktown's an interesting place too, because that's the place where uh, Captain Cook spent most time on land in Australia. He spent uh, 47 days at Cooktown repairing his the endeavour when uh, they ran aground on a coral reef just outside the heads uh, there so uh, you can see where they they, they were they were um, what boarded up hoarded up or whatever you want to call it <laughs> uh, hold up I think that's the word I was looking for where they were holed up in Cooktown and uh, and um, you it was the place where I think in the 50s when the Queen and Prince Philip came out, um, they had a planned landing there for her in a red carpet, but of course the tides were such that the, the ship couldn't dock there, so they had to dock somewhere else. The end result was the Queen got on land and she was actually on land in Cooktown for 47 minutes, they told us. <laughs> uh, and of course, um, it's, it's a lot is made of that. But it's a very interesting town, a very interesting uh, place. Have you been up that far north? 
Uh, I've been to Cairns. I haven't been much beyond Cairns. Uh, yeah. so, but uh, no, it's a good dairy. It's quite a distance, isn't it, to Cooktown from there, I think, isn't it? Yeah, it's about a three-and-a-half-hour drive by car. It's um, a very, yeah, it's an interesting place. It's got a lot of history, a lot of uh, Aboriginal history there. There's, as always, Russell, um, there is this implicit tension between uh, the settling of that by white people and uh, and the indigenous culture and peoples up there. Um, that's a, a a conversation that's always had up there in one way or the other, but it seems to be working pretty well with the people there at the moment. But yeah, no, look, the weather was warmer. That's the other thing. We didn't have cold weather. No, that's right. Had a bit of a spell. <laughs> Unlike you people down here. Um, now, we've got some interesting uh, stories here today, Russell, for our um, for What's Making News. In the age, tech giant flags fear over fake news law. Tech giant Meta, the parent company of Facebook and Instagram, says it is concerned new legislation designed to limit the spread of online misinformation could have a chilling effect on free speech in Australia with potential for it to be abused to shut down legitimate debate. We've heard that one before, haven't we? Yes, it comes up from time to time. Yeah, the federal government announced legislation to give Australian Communications and Media Authority, ACMA, new powers, including a government-mandated industry-wide standard on misinformation and disinformation. And it's the government mandate that's got the uh, some of the tech giants uh, up in arms about. Um, now, they will have the authority and the power to request specific content or posts to be removed from social media sites. And it's been criticised by some coalition MPs as being Orwellian in nature. Uh, now, there are fines of uh, up to $2.75 million or 2% of global turnover for repeat occurrences. Now, Meta's handling head of the public policy, Josh Mashon, said that the company was happy to be part of a voluntary industry code, but not a compulsory government-run scheme, especially with the penalties. And uh, they, he said he could see the potential for the powers to be abused. Um, and they distinguished misinformation, meaning unintentionally false, misleading or deceptive uh, information which could lead to harm, as distinct from disinformation, which is material deliberately false. And so that's the, the two definitions. Mm. Of course, if you speak to the E-Commissioner of Australia and other people that are concerned about it, um, the voluntary codes rarely seem to work very well and there's too much evidence uh, in too many cases of where um, fake news and other abuses through what's called um, free speech cause great harm to people. Yes, and often you hear when people, it's obviously you can see an unfair sight and it takes sometimes a long time to take it down at the moment, doesn't it, too? Yes, it does. And so um, there are, there's the other side to that uh, uh, debate about free speech. Uh, free speech, come, with it comes responsibilities that are not always um, adhered to, particularly by some of our big tech giants there, Russell. Now, here's one that's uh, another health one that we've come across. It's a, I di had no idea of this one, did you? No, it's uh, from the Herald Sun. Uh, jobs can uh, give you ovarian cancer. Um, women working as hairdressers 
beauticians, accountants or in retail may be at an increased risk of ovarian cancer, new research suggests. And they've done a, a study of 500 cancer sufferers compared with a group that didn't have the disease. Uh, the University of Montreal, sort of behind the study, found women working in clothing and construction may be vulnerable to ovarian cancer whereas nurses and teachers had a decreased risk. And they say it's due to long-term exposure to cosmetic talcum powder, ammonia, propellant gases, petrol, hydrogen peroxide, and some bleaches. Uh, and so those careers involving that, they're, they're most at risk. Uh, also sedentary occupations like accountancy. Mm. And, uh, it's the, and synthetic and polyester fibres could affect clothing workers. Now, hairdressers particularly uh, are vulnerable. There are many products, of course, they use, ranging from shampoos, cosmetic products, uh, conditioners, etc. And so these apparently can have a link with this ovarian cancer, which kills a thousand Australians each year and is difficult to diagnose. And um, more women, uh, they've also found more women with ovarian cancer tend to have lower educational attainment, uh, use of, uh, shorter use of oral contraceptives, and either no or fewer children than the comparison group. Now, whether there's a, a link between those, uh, but it certainly seems clear about the chemicals more, doesn't it? Yes, and it's, it's because it's such a difficult one to diagnose and they're not sure of the risk factors. Uh, it's, it's one that can get to, unfortunately, an advanced stage too quickly quickly and as we all know um, the earlier the detection Russell uh, the better are your chances of survival so um, it's uh, it's an interest it's a very um, well frighteningly interesting one uh, in, and the the, re the re author's work uh, that they've done the research here certainly uh, gives us uh, a starting point if you know on, on the journey to um, preventative uh, preventative treatments or or lifestyle behaviors be interesting to see what you do with it though russell if they can determine that the products hairdressers use yes, are, are so dangerous that they cause this a heightened risk what do you then do with the hairdressing industry and the use of those they'll have to come up with different sorts of products wouldn't they Yes, they will. I mean, they've already changed propellant gases and aerosol things, I think, over mm. the time. So mm. well, it's going to mean that uh, well, some of those industries can't get away from it at the moment, you wouldn't think, you know, particularly in construction too, where they've got uh, chemicals and petrol and all sorts of things. It's a, it's a, it's, it's a watch this space one as it is with most uh, cancers, isn't it, Russell? Yes, mm. I suppose it's, it gives a message to those people who get uh, checks regularly, uh, perhaps more often uh, and earlier. Although with this one it says it's hard to detect it in its early stages, but of course that doesn't mean you shouldn't go to your doctor and have those regular medical checkups. When you take a short break, Russ, can you hold the line? Uh, the answer is always yes, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> one, day, one day I might say, no, I'm going for a walk. <laughs> <laughs> well, not today. We'll take a short not break. Listen, just don't go away. Welcome back to Viewpoints, listeners. I'm your host, Henry Grossack, and we're in the second part of this week's What's Making News. You didn't go for that walk you threatened to before the break, have you, Russell? No, no. <laughs> I didn't have time. <laughs> so so where you now live, has that uh, got some... Because you did move address a little while ago, you and your wife. Uh, what are the walking tracks like around where you live now? 
Well, it's fairly residential, but there's some good parks and uh, bike paths to walk along. Uh, and I've got we've got a few little routes that take you know up to an hour to walk from here, so uh, they're quite good actually. And I've got to, I get the maps out and have a look and uh, work it all out. <laughs> have you um, acclimatised and discarded all the nostalgia and memories of uh, your earlier address and quite comfortable where you are? Yes, yes, in a retirement village, and you can do as little or as much involvement with the community. And uh, in fact, tomorrow afternoon, they're going to have a meet and greet uh, of all the new people in the last few months. So that's a, an afternoon tea. So that's what I'm looking forward to, too. So they're very friendly, and, and you can take and be involved or not involved. It's up to you, you know. Will you be setting up a radio program up there to, <laughs> to segue into your uh, programs that you have at Casey Radio 97.7 FM? <laughs> I could, yeah, that'd be something. Actually, one of the ladies, when she heard I went to radio on Thursdays, said, oh, we could get the, a, a, sort of a PA system throughout the village and you could play requests like, yes. like, they, do in, like they do in hospitals sometimes, you know. Not a bad idea, Russ, and you'd, <laughs> uh, you'd have some of the music that uh, that uh, would resonate with the, the other people yeah. in that retirement village, wouldn't you? Well, on well, my second hour of the program on a Thursday's 50s and 60s, so it's right down their alley, yes. You could do some pre-recording up at your, um, where you live now. I mean, that you've done some of that before. You could have some of the the more uh, colourful uh, residents <laughs> there as guests, and you might even get some karaoke going on your program. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> but anyway... <laughs> They didn't know they had an old DJ in their in their midst, no, did they? They find out because they, uh, I said uh, they, they said, "What are you doing?" Oh, most days, except Thursday morning, and of course they were very curious to know what happened. So you can't keep things secret for too long. <laughs> no, you can't. You can't. Although, of course, um, and did you tell them that your wife loves to see you sneak off to the radio studio Thursday mornings? So it gives her a bit <laughs> yeah. of peace and quiet. That's right. Yeah. Does yeah, she yeah, listen into your program much? No, she's never, she's never listened in. She says she hears me enough at home. <laughs> probably, probably true, Russell. Back, uh, back to what's making news. Um, the age, um, Coral Lake to usher, help usher in a new uh, epoch. Scientists are on the verge of declaring a new epoch as they gather hard evidence that humanity has permanently altered the planet's geological record through industrial activity and the detonation of nuclear bombs. Another alarming uh, story uh, of how we're degrading the um, environment, Russell. Yes, and uh, the current epoch hasn't been formally announced uh, as having ended, and the current one is called Holocene. Uh, in fact, it started 11,700 years ago after the Ice Age, and uh, they think there's a new epoch now, which they're calling Anthrop Anthropocene, or, or Anthropocene, uh, and it's defined by humanity's impact on the Earth. Um, now, they couldn't really get a change of uh, these epochs unless they had what they call a golden spike, which is a, a global boundary stratotype section. It sounds a bit complicated, mm -hmm. but it demarcates a global shift into a new geological time period. And uh, they found one of these so-called golden spikes in a 2.4-hectare lake in Ontario, Canada, Lake Crawford, in fact. Now, what happens at the layers of... Uh, silt or calcium and carbonate. Every summer, warm water triggers the calcium and carbonate ions, 
which are charged particles, to uh, form bedrock, to crystallise and sink. And they, that makes a yearly white layer. And you can peel back these layers and virtually uh, see what is in the layers and also time it when it was done. And changes uh, make the time since mid-20th century uh, geologically different from before. Now, at the lake, layers of the Earth's history uh, are peeled back and they've shown over the decades fly ash from burning fossil fuels, nitrogen from fertilisers and plutonium from the 1950s nuclear bomb uh, bomb tests. Wow. So, so they say, well, this is definitely the effect of humans and this is our new uh, geological time period. And... Uh, the new epoch, they reckon, can be always pinpointed at 1950 when, really? when say, the nuclear tests uh, were on about, yeah. Mm. And, in fact, our corals, even in the, our local area, the Barrier Reef, they also add calcium carbonate in layers and possibly can be used also uh, to see if there's a, a golden spike, as they call it. It's amazing, isn't it, how far we can go with science and uh, the use of science to map uh, how how uh, conditions on, on our planet have um, changed over, well, the millennium, really, and many, many years. It's uh, And the illustration in the age of uh, the map key is, is fascinating, too. Uh, were, you, um, were you aware of any of this? No, I wasn't really. That that, that it was on about to change, and um, I didn't. I must admit, I wasn't even aware of the name Holocene until I read it today. The current one, we've heard of Pleistocene and all those other old uh, geographical uh, times, but uh, never heard of. Have you heard of Holocene? No, 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 not at all. Not at all. It's a fascinating. It's a yeah. fascinating one. Um, no, I haven't seen that one at all. Uh, but interesting. Um, we had to put the next one in, Russell, because something very, um, I think, uh, exciting is happening. It's the first time that we'll have hosted this in Australia and uh, and our women are, are doing a fabulous job in soccer, aren't they? That's right, yes, the Matildas. And uh, the headline in the Herald Sun, Matildas Cup charge has fans going wild. Yes, Australian captain Sam Kerr says her side will embrace the high excitement of its fans at the World Cup as a squad de veteran calls the escalating uh, interest in the women's game pretty crazy. And on Friday, they had a send-off at uh, Fed Square. Well, actually, they I think it was earlier in the week. Uh, mm. They were in front of... Uh, Tuesday, it was, yes. They had a big uh, presentation to their fans at Federation Square for all the supporters. And they're having a, a send-off game on Friday against France at uh, Marvel Stadium. Uh, the campaign officially begins uh, on Thursday, July the 20th against Ireland. But the Tuesday uh, business at the Fed Square, they had a raucous crowd mm. and they saw the team presented uh, to them one by one. In fact, at the Fed Square gathering, um, members of the Australian women's football squad were presented with jerseys, yellow jerseys, by 23 young soccer participants around the country, all appropriately named Matilda. So there were 23 young, excited young Matildas presenting to their, uh, their heroes at the, uh, at, the, uh, at the Fed Square this week. Mm, look, it's a marvellous thing. And they're one of the favoured teams, the Matildas. Uh, our men performed admirably in the Men's World Cup uh, not so long ago, but uh, our women are much higher rated and uh, considered a genuine, a genuine uh, chance to, to take it off. 
That's right. It's the first time they've competed, isn't it, in the World mm-hmm. Cup? And mm-hmm. and having a World Cup in Australia um, and New Zealand is uh, is something uh, not to be sneezed at. And uh, yeah, I'll be certainly watching. I used to play soccer before I played football, Aussie rules, and I have an equal love of soccer and uh, football. What about yourself? Are you at all interested in the round yeah, well, ball game? Well, I think this one, because of all the uh, the uh, sort of fuss and all the fun and games about it would catch one's interest, wouldn't it, you know? Well, but, um, yes. Yes. A bit like and the so Olympic I, Games, if they're held in your country and your yes. country's sort of uh, in there, you'd, you'd probably be a bit, I think it'd be a bit ordinary not to take some interest <laughs> in it at least. Uh, yeah. at least. And, even, and even if there are some of the events you're not interested, often you can get interested. Sometimes you're not interested because you don't really understand the rules. But once you pick them up and some of these uh, televised sports, they get quite exciting, don't they? Mm, absolutely. Now, this is one, uh, <laughs> the Toronto Zoo. What's going on up there, Russell, in yeah. the odd spot? Right, I'll just pick the paper up off the floor. There we go. Uh, Toronto Zoo doesn't want its gorillas watching any more videos on mobile phones. The zoo has posted signs outside the gorilla, the gorilla enclosure asking visitors not to show videos to the animals as some <laughs> content can be upsetting and affect their relationships and behaviour within their family, they reckon. Now, it says one gorilla in particular would let screen time dominate its life if given the choice. Sounds like some young kids, yes, doesn't it? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> the animals are allowed to watch nature documentaries and other contents under controlled circumstances. Sounds so, um, so much like what we're going yeah. through yeah. With, with our own children and, and in fact some adults. They've, um, looks like it must be quite addictive to them too. Yes, and apparently they can have some sense of understanding what's going on, mm. but that's the impression mm. you get too. Mm. So, so you, you've got to watch what you show them like you do with children. <laughs> Absolutely, it does. Well, Russell, listen, you have a great weekend and you get all those... Um, all those people in your retirement village into a, what, some sort of choir and you can have some karaoke on your, what is it, Thursday morning program? Oh, yes. Well, I've only been there barely a month or just over a month. I don't want to sort of start too quickly, you know. Well, I, think a, I think a couple of them there would be pretty keen. They'd probably ask you for your autograph already, have they? <laughs> Not yet, no. Oh, I'm, sure that'll, I'm sure that'll come. Well, listen, you have a great weekend and we'll catch up again the same time next week, Russ. Uh, all right, we'll look forward to it.